Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 281 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Ashley Goodall about leading and managing teams. Today's podcast is brought to you by First Place Legal, Law Pay, Text Expander, and Back Office Betty's. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So, Laura, have you had any virtual fun parties lately? I have really enjoyed connecting with family members and doing fun events over Zoom or FaceTime. I feel like we've definitely had to get more creative, but I think it's been really fun to figure out how do we still get that human connection, even though we're all sort of still isolated in our homes. And I think we've been doing that as a team, too. I'm actually really looking forward every single week to our Thursday taco lunch event with Lawyerist because our operations manager Paige is amazing at coming up with awesome ideas and fun things for us to do and feel connected, but also get to know one another more. Yeah. And compete, which we love. Yes. (laughs) Let's just be real. We love it. We played categories one week. We've done trivia. We did um, Pictionary. We did Pictionary. Yeah, that was interesting. (laughs) Everyone was trying to draw with their fingers on their mouse pads. Yeah. In lab, some labsters requested, hey, what about a game night? And I was like, "Um, okay. So we put together this first ever labster game night where I hosted um, team trivia. I put on some Christmas decorations I had as a boat, like, you know, we tried to dress up for the occasion. It was super silly, Yeah. but everyone got really into it and we had so much fun and we just laughed and I love it. I think any opportunity you can find to connect with people and add in that element of laughter is so important because especially if you have a remote team or if your team became suddenly remote as a result of the pandemic, it's something that really helps build that cohesion and helps people feel really positive and excited about being a part of your team. Do you have any tips for maybe the law firm that their team is now suddenly remote and now they're trying to figure out, well, we might go back to the office or we might stay remote. How can you do some of that virtual team building right now if you haven't made that effort so far? Yeah, I mean, video helps. So, you know, use Zoom or use one of the many tools that are out there now to get on video so people can see each other. If you're not already silly, then maybe don't be silly, <laughs> but, be, <laughs> but maybe push yourself a little bit. So even like my daughter's class did crazy hair day the last week of school for their Zoom call. And um, I was challenging our team that maybe we should have crazy hair day, at, you know, our <laughs> wear a hat day and be creative. One of the Zoom calls we had, it was Aaron Street's birthday. I had everyone make a sign ahead of time. And then when it was time, we like had noisemakers and held up our signs and threw confetti like wherever we were to be like, yay, happy birthday. (laughs) Because it's a small thing, but it was fun to do. And then, I mean, I hope he appreciated it. (laughs) And I feel like one of our labsters also scheduled a Zoom team event where 
the person was on site at a farm with a goat or some other kind of farm animal just randomly to bring joy to their team members. The team had no idea what the event was going to be. They were just told be here with your significant other or family members at this time. And so I feel like those little things like, yeah, it's a small event and it might only be 15 or 20 minutes, but it can really brighten up somebody's day. And it feels like that kind of thing is more important than ever now. So what I'm taking away from what you said is be authentic to who you are, but still think about ways that you can be creative and make things for your team. Yeah. Like if you normally have a family picnic, let's say it's summertime and maybe that's something companies do, right? And you're not able to do that this year. Like how can you replace some of that? So one of our labsters He had his daughter, who's a little bit one of the older kids in the team of kids that, you know, if you think about everyone's kids on the team, and they had a Zoom call just for the kids, and his daughter read a story to all the other kids, and they kind of like acted it out and got dressed up and stuff. So it was super fun, and then everybody enjoyed it, and had so it was a way to still have a family element to your team building this summer. So get creative, share ideas. We can throw up some ideas in the Facebook group and and brainstorm with each other, but, but have fun with it and, you know, maybe let your hair down a little bit. I know we're lawyers. We're always very serious, but sometimes we have to be silly. Yeah, I love that. And if you have creative ideas or things you've done with your team that you love, join us over in the Lawyerist Insider Facebook group, and we'd love to get inspired by your ideas and collaborate on those types of things. So now we've got a sponsored conversation with Jay Rathman from First Place Legal and then Sam's conversation with Ashley. Uh, My name is Jay Rathman and I am the chief bottle washer at firstplacelegal.com. We are a digital marketing agency that focuses exclusively on helping attorneys and law firms uh, get found on the web for organic searches. Awesome. Well, welcome to the podcast. Our listeners have heard from you before, always bringing lots of value around SEO. I know one of the biggest challenges is that it's always changing. And it sounds like there's some new updates that have happened specifically related to Google Maps that are kind of difficult to to figure out if you're just getting started with this. So do you have any recommendations? Yeah, Google is, uh, they're not as friendly as people think, right? They come out with these big updates. They don't tell you what they are. And then you have to figure it out. And fortunately for us, we've been able to do that pretty consistently. So let me just take a step back. Pay attention because there's going to be a webinar that we're going to have about this where we get in super detail. It's going to be on June 25th. It's free of charge. You can register for it. And you'll actually get a workbook also so that you really have strong information to take away. But here's the deal with Google um, and Google Maps. People don't realize that That is the most important citation you could have. Google Maps, which is really, it's Google My Business. That's the listing that's inside Google Maps. And if you're not familiar with it, when you Google something, you know, like restaurant near me, right? You'll see in Google Maps, there's always three listings. And then underneath it is the organic results that everybody else is trying to get. Those are still very important for law firms, but Google Maps can generate 40 to 50% of the new calls to your firm. So it's really important to get in there. How do you get in there? That's the key. It's not just making sure that your name, address, and phone number is correct. It's not just putting photos in there. It's not just putting, you know, a detailed description in there. Those are all part of it, but there are literally over 50 steps that you need to take to do this the right way. And if you do it the right way, 
Google will reward you for it. Um, I'll give you some examples, if I may. Yeah. When you upload your photos, there's four different sections. There's user content, owner content, interior, and exterior. You should upload eight to 10 photos of each of those, so 30 to 40 photos. All of those photos should also be original. You don't want to use stock footage, which everybody uses, and then they can't figure out why Google's not giving them authority for it. That's really important. You want to make sure that your descriptions are important. Your category is important. You know, if you're a general practice law firm, you could have 10, 15 different categories that would make sense to somebody. You really only want to zero in on two or three at the most and build authority to those. There's just so much involved. Uh, some of it's common sense, Laura, and some of it, you, if you don't have the knowledge, you're kind of swimming with sharks and you're going to tread water for quite a long time. I totally agree with you there. I've seen it time and time again where it's these little things that might slip under the radar for you, but they have a really big impact on SEO. So this sounds like this is going to be a very heavy learning, pitch-free webinar. You're going to get a tremendous amount of value out of it and learn some of those steps to rank in Google Maps effectively for your law firm. Yeah, I'm not trying to sell anything. I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, we like to gain more clients, um, but we do that by teaching, right? Not by selling or pitching. You know, we're going to give you all the information that you need literally to do this yourself, including a workbook. I think you'll realize that maybe you're better focused spending your time billing clients for legal services and letting somebody else that knows what they're doing, (laughs) you know, help you with your website. But, you know, we we really want to just give everybody good value and we find that that comes back to us. So. Absolutely. And with these kinds of things, it's far better to set it up the right way from the beginning rather than be six months down the road and all of your competition has done it and you're trying to figure out, well, where do I go wrong? How do I walk this backwards and try to figure it out and figure out why I'm not getting more of those calls? If you do it right the first time around, you'll have all those steps in place and you'll know that you're going to get those calls that are directed to you. Yeah, absolutely. So what I would do is the the folks that are listening is I would strongly encourage you to go to registration.firstplacelegal.com. Again, registration.firstplacelegal.com. And we're also going to be in your, your big email blast that goes out on June 25th. So they'll be able to register there also. But just in case you don't see that email, take advantage of it now. Even if you don't know for sure if you can make it, we'll send you a replay of the whole thing along with the workbook. So it's really important to to gain the information. So if you want to get ahead on making sure that you are properly set up with Google Maps, you can register for that webinar at registration.firstplacelegal.com. It's happening on Tuesday, June 30th. And in addition to attending the webinar and getting all this great information, just for signing up, Jay will audit your website and your Google My Business for you. So we hope to see you there. Thanks, Jay. You got it. Thank you so much. Everybody stay safe. So this is Ashley Goodall. I am the SVP of Methods and Intelligence at Cisco. Um, Before that, I was running an organization called Leadership and Team Intelligence, uh, which was, as you might imagine, all about leadership and teams (laughs) and supplying them with the best intelligence we could. If you want to know anything about me, you should know that I like words, I like questions, I like designed things, I like 
hard-won clarity and I like symphonies. I'm a proud husband, father. I live in Montclair, New Jersey. Very cool. Ashley, thanks for being with us today. Um, you didn't mention the Free Thinking Leader Coalition. Can you tell us a little bit about that too? Yeah, so uh, we're here talking about Nine Lives About Work, obviously. Yeah. One of the things that we were trying to do as we were writing that book and getting ready to publish it was actually not vanish for our audience for the year it typically takes from the end of a manuscript being written to the publication of that one. So you have to edit it and design the book um, and so on and so forth. What we did was we invited people to come and join us in the Free Thinking Leader Coalition to begin to explore and get an early view of some of the ideas in the book, to debate with us, to uh, answer questions, uh, so on and so forth. Since the book has been published, we've now made that available to anyone for free. So if you point your browser at freethinkingleader.org, there's all sorts of resources. There's more videos than you can shake a stick at. There's a book club. There's Q&A. There's all sorts of stuff there just to get the ideas out in the world so that people can engage with them and understand some of the things that we're trying to change in the world of work. Very cool. That sort of encompasses your background is dealing with people and leadership and management issues, right? Yeah, that's what I've been interested in for, gosh, I don't know, 20 years. I'm fascinated by that because I, I feel like people and management issues are things I'm terrible at. <laughs> so so I've been reading a lot about this. And one of the reasons I was so interested in talking with you about it is, one, I like provocative titles like your book title, Nine Lies About Work. But it also, be, it kind of gets to this thing where, you know, as a podcast host, as a as a business leader, I spend a lot of time reading business books And quite often you get this sort of sneaking suspicion that there's some bullshit at work. And I I saw your book title and I was like, oh, maybe this is going to help clarify it for me. And I I think it does. I mean, is that kind of what's going on there? Yeah. (laughs) You know, I don't want to speak for any of your listeners, but there have been times in my career, shockingly enough, in large organizations where I've thought to myself, really? Do they Mm -hmm. really mean that? That's a crock of you know what. <laughs> I think many of us have had those experiences where it's and it's not necessarily that our organizations mean ill, right? But very often they are either careless or incurious or focused on something that serves them that doesn't always serve us. And the results are things that land on us from on high where we go, oh, that's just off, isn't it? And usually the experience of off is connected to the experience of um, inhuman yeah, uh, or maybe unhuman. Hmm. You said a moment ago you, you think sometimes you struggle with the, the management stuff. Yeah. I think we've massively over-haloed the management <laughs> stuff. It's up on a pedestal. It's If you actually study it, the thing that works really, really well with other humans is being a human. Mm. And we're all actually quite good at that. We just need a little bit of permission and a little bit of a, how do I show up as a human with people who are in this bizarre relationship to me at work where they report to me and what does that mean and that doesn't exist anywhere else. I think work complicates the business of being human, but it need not eradicate it. Sure, yeah. If people just want the list of the nine lies, you've got great materials online about that. People can just go find the list. I want to talk about some of them. And maybe we'll even touch on all of them on, on the way. But I think one of the things you were just mentioning, and, and maybe one of the reasons why it feels like uh, management issues and business books and things all get a little bit overcomplicated is just about perspective. 
And this goes to your first lie, which is that people actually care what company they work for. And as business leaders, that is a horrifying thing to hear because we're fed all of this stuff about, you know, culture and getting everybody enthusiastic and passionate. And, you know, that's one of those things where I'm like, really, is somebody passionate about, um, you know, uh, somebody tried to tell us recently that they were passionate about helping connecting lawyers to the software that would help them succeed. And I'm like, that, that's not true. It's a pretty precise passion, isn't it? That one. <laughs> yeah, that, like, that's absolutely not true. Nobody is passionate about that. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a theme running through the book that maybe we could, when we rewrite it, we can call out a little bit more more clearly. But there is a way in which the language of work has been desensitized. Mm-hmm. And there is also a way in which the language of work needs to be, I think, reanimated. Mm. So you, you get a lovely example there with passionate. Now it's, if you're not passionate at work, you're asleep, I think. I think yes. that's the next thing down on the scale. <laughs> Everyone lives in a perpetual state of excitement. If you read emails, people are always in the first line of an email, excited to dot, dot, dot. Yes, lots of exclamation points. Lots of exclamation points. We've, <laughs> we've sort of decided, I don't know who reached agreement on this, and I certainly wasn't consulted. <laughs> we've decided that work must be inhabited in this state of perpetual frenzy. Mm. And I wonder, sincerely, I wonder why. Why are we trying to pump so much energy into it? What are we compensating for? Mm. And of course, the, the thing that somehow gets lost in all of the the verbal noise and verbal um, superlatives is actually love, which we don't talk about at work very much. Mm. But goodness me, if you're starting out as a team leader and you want to find out about the people on your team, the humans, it's a wonderful thing to say, what do you love about what you do? Mm-hmm. Not what are you passionate about, because then people will give you the passion answer, which isn't true. Right. But what do you love about what you do? And people will share something beautiful and meaningful and useful when you ask that question. Because people do actually love things about work. Yeah, totally. But it's it's pretty rare, I think, for somebody to like identify with the passion or, or the, the mission of the company they work for as this is the purpose that I come to the world for. It's, no, I value my coworkers. I value the the rewards I get, the feeling of working together on really hard things and solving, whatever. Those are real things that people might love. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, that's relevant to this, this idea that people actually don't care very much which company they work for mm-hmm. because actually affiliation and relationship uh, and love are local. Mm-hmm. They don't operate particularly well at long distance. They operate some, if you look at the research, they operate some. It's not that I have no affiliation for Cisco, but... If you tried to subtract Cisco from the people I know and work with at Cisco, you'd have a really hard time doing it. And we tend to substitute one for the other, which might seem like a sort of academic argument. But when you look at the data, when you look at people's behavior, it varies. People's behavior, for example, of leaving a company varies enormously inside that company. Now, if a company experiences as uniform as we're led to believe by all the conversation about culture and our company is like this and our company does this, then you would expect pretty much people's experience would be uniform and therefore people's behavior would be uniform. Mm -hmm. But what you see instead is an enormous range of experience within a company, much greater range, by the way, within one company than between one company and the next company. And you see people responding to that. You see behavior changing in response to that, which is to say that a company is a loose confederation of little teams of people. <laughs> and I guess maybe at small businesses, that's a, if your business is small enough, 
then maybe the company and the team start to conflate. Start to converge, yes. If your business is large, then understand that what you've got to start with is the teams in the business Mm -hmm. and make each team great and authentic and um, empowered and well-informed and intelligently constructed. And there are a lot of great things you can think about when you go how do I make more teams like my best teams here? Mm-hmm. And that's what your business needs, and that's what your people need too. I want to skip ahead to, um, I think, two or three of the lies that kind of go together, I think, which is the idea that people need feedback, people can reliably rate other people, and maybe people um, have potential, are even kind of wrapped up. And I want to get to those But we also need to take a break to hear from our sponsors, and I think I want to do that now before we dive into that. So we'll be back in a few minutes to talk about those lies. Part of building a successful practice is finding the right payment partner. It's important to work with a processor that understands the complex rules for legal payments. LawPay is the only payment solution that ensures trust account compliance for both credit card and e-check transactions. Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program and all 50 state bars. LawPay. To learn more or to get started, visit lawpay.com slash lawyerist today. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Bettys are ready to help you grow your firm even when you're out of the office. Visit www.backofficebetties.com slash lawyerist to try them out for one week free. Use promo code PODCAST to receive $150 off your first month. Typing the same thing like your email address or phone number over and over is a productivity killer. Turn everything you need to type more than once into a snippet with Text Expander. Type an abbreviation you make and your snippet automatically expands. Text Expander works everywhere you type and helps you reduce errors and increase productivity. Text Expander is also available for companies so you can share snippets with everyone on your team. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com/podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Okay, we're back. So, Ashley, when I said I, I enjoy provocative titles, I find number five to be one of the most provocative ones, especially because, you know, we've been diving into books like The Five Dysfunctions of a Team and mm-hmm. um, We Try to Follow Traction. And, and a lot of management models are based on, um, on feedback and how to do it well and, you know, how to be candid but respectful and all those kind of um, radical candor and things like that. And mm-hmm. so this lie just sort of like just really explodes into my consciousness. So tell me more about that and, and what the deal is. Yeah, it's a conversation about growth, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason that we're all so interested, at least the purported reason that we're all so interested in rushing around giving one another feedback the whole time is to help the other people grow. And indeed, one of the things that people come back with when they say, well, you know, when we say, look, feedback is actually a little bit toxic if you are <laughs> not careful. Go, well, I meant well. No, that is the sneaking suspicion that comes along with this one, right? Is like, yeah, it actually kind of sucks to get some feedback. It sucks to get feedback. And the, so I had good intent is not a particular defense to that. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, look, I elbowed you in the eye, but I didn't mean to. It doesn't make your eye feel any better at that moment. That's a bizarre metaphor for feedback, but one I quite <laughs> like, elbowing people in the eye. So what's interesting about the world of feedback is that we're all very keen to be able to give it and massively less keen to be able to receive it. Hmm. 
it's asymmetrical. That should tell us something. I think most of us have had two experiences in life. The first being, gosh, I really should tell that person what they're doing wrong and why they're driving me up the wall right now. And the second being, why on earth did that person just unload on me? The giving and receiving experiences are very different. We're doing all of this to try and help people grow. But actually, the first thing that you discover, if you look at the science, is if you put somebody in a position of threat, then their brain shuts down. You get fight or flight. That's not growth. The, The brain system is a very different system that you activate when you threaten someone than when you help them learn. Mm -hmm. So firstly, that's not particularly effective. And then there's this whole idea that I can somehow tell Sam how Sam should be a better version of Sam, that I have some privileged and special access to that information that Sam doesn't have. And that sort of goes to the next lie, right, about reliably rating other people, because in order to give feedback, I have to know how well you're doing at being you or doing your job or whatever, right? Yeah. And I have to have a reliable way of judging that and some set of standards. I mean, it's interesting how much effort people have gone to, to try and make feedback all sorts of rigorous, if you like. Mm -hmm. And folks will say, well, we're going to define all the behaviors and then you can measure people against (laughs) the behaviors and then you can give them scores on a scale and then we'll normalize the scales and then we'll have behavior anchors. It's all this big attempt to deal with the nagging suspicion that when you talk about communication excellence and I talk about communication excellence, they have different meanings to different people and we have different ways of doing them. And in that context, my goodness me, I shouldn't be giving you feedback on you, your communications. I should be sharing with you my reaction to what I'm receiving. It's a super, super subtle difference. But if I say, Sam, you didn't communicate that very well, You're um, at liberty to go, well, hang on, what do you mean by communicate? And it says who? (laughs) But if I say, Sam, I didn't understand a word you said. Now I'm just talking about my experience. I'm not threatening you as much. You might be threatened by feeling that I hadn't understood you, but I think it's massively less likely. I'm giving you a piece of information that you are free to reject or use or get curious about or go, look, I don't care whether you understood me or not. (laughs) Right. If I give you my reaction, I'm getting much more directly to giving you information that you could use to improve if you so wanted to. And that's humbler and at the same time more effective. Am I right to then extrapolate that to, okay, so if I'm telling people the effect that their job performance, their behavior, their communication, whatever has on me, and they don't act on it, the fact that they decide not to act on something that has a harmful impact on me or on my team or whatever, now I can use that to decide whether or not they're a good fit for this this team or this company. I mean, ultimately, management is about making decisions about mm-hmm. whether people are the best fit or not. Yeah. Most often, the reason someone doesn't act on your reaction to them is they're not capable of it. Mm. So what do you do with that? Well, I think firstly you go, huh, you know, it's just possible that most of us show up at work every day trying to do a good job. (laughs) That's, I think, a pretty decent place to start. And so what would you do with that? I would go to the person and say, hey, you know when I said the other day that I didn't understand a word you said? Nothing seems to have changed. Mm -hmm. And they'll go, yeah, I couldn't figure out what to change. Or they'll go, uh yeah, I don't really uh, want to, or (laughs) I don't know. You'll find out something else. You'll find out something else. But curiosity and and sharing reactions always trumps 
saying, here's my feedback for you, you need to fix it. Mm -hmm. Because you're confronting somebody with your view of them, which won't be their view of them, and steps to improvement, which you would take, but they may not take because their brain's not your brain. Right. And then maybe the last thing to say is the most pernicious thing about all of this, this whole topic of feedback or reactions, is we have it in our heads somehow that the most important thing we can do is repair the other people, that growth equals fixing right. folks. <laughs> and in fact, if you study it, it doesn't. Fixing people is important when there's a clear rule book or a process to do this. Beyond that, which is to say most of work today, performance excellence is idiosyncratic. It's, it's about finding your own way to do something. Mm -hmm. And so the reactions we should be sharing are not reactions when something goes bad, but reactions when it goes really, really well. So someone can go, oh, my God, that landed. Okay, what did I do? How could I do more of that? It's the catch somebody doing something right and then interrogate the hell out of it for them. That's what we need to be doing. Gotcha. And I touched on it very, very briefly, but I, I feel like I want to know a little bit more about the idea that people are bad at reliably rating other people. There's science on this one. It's probably the quickest way is to just do a super quick recap of the science. But um, you look at, and, and people have been doing this for 20 years, you look at a situation where people do a lot of 360 degree ratings, okay? Mm -hmm. So you have a bunch of employees and they're rated by a boss and two peers and two subordinates or whatever. And then you analyze all the ratings. And if the ratings were reflecting, carrying some information about the employee, you would expect that what drives change in rating is change in employee. In other words, when I look at your scores, they should be different from my scores, yes? Mm -hmm. What you actually find is that the scores change more based on who entered the scores, the rater, <laughs> not the ratee. So your scores and my scores depend not on you and me, but on whether Bob rated us or James rated us. Gotcha. And James's ratings have a pattern, and Bob's ratings have a pattern. And they move with Bob, not with who Bob is rating. Hmm. Okay. That means that, of course, all of this data that we're sitting on in our organizations that's ratings data, whether it's potential data or performance data or nine box scores or five point rating scales, mm -hmm. all of it is flawed. And, you know, folks will say, well, not very much, surely. I mean, mainly when I rate Ashley, I'm rating Ashley, right? Mm -hmm. You look at the data and you go, no, 61% of your rating is how you use a rating scale or how you enter into the particular instrument or how you interpret the questions, 61%. If you look at, again, in the analysis, how much of all of that varies dependent on the ratee, the person being rated, it's about 18% typically. So it's a very noisy measure. And then folks go, oh, well, the thing to do is to add it all up. Let's have 16 people <laughs> rate Ashley, and from all right. of the chaos of that mess will miraculously emerge the truth, to which the answer is actually no. If the numbers on your measuring tape are painted wrongly, measuring the thing 15 times won't make it any better. You'll just get 15 bad measurements. So what do you do? How do we, like, I mean, ultimately, one of the jobs that we have to do as a management or leadership is decide if people are doing their jobs well. Oh, no, we don't have to decide that. Okay, say more. <laughs> we just have to decide what we're going to do. What's interesting is that all of the ratings and stuff have been created to mediate somebody observing performance and somebody making a decision 
with respect to performance. It's the mm. bridge, right? Mm -hmm. So we ask your manager to rate you and then we take their rating and we go away into a room by ourselves and make decisions about you based on what your manager told us about you, yes? Mm -hmm. Okay. The easier thing to do is to have your manager just make their own decisions about what to do about you. Oh. <laughs> you can cut out all yeah. of the stuff in the middle. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that when you look at the, the validity of the data, we're horrible at rating other people. We're really good when it comes to reporting what we intend to do next. Because the only thing we need to be expert in to report what we're going to do next is us and how we're feeling. And we have all the data in the world to report to other people. I think I'm going to give Sam a raise. I think Sam needs a promotion. Mm -hmm. I think Sam needs to leave now, whatever the <laughs> list of things is. So the person closest to that employee is the person who should be at least making the recommendations. Yeah, there's a shift. None of those things are true about Sam. Those are all true about your intent with respect to Sam. Right. So you locate truth in a different place. And then folks go, yeah, but we'd have to empower our managers, wouldn't we? <laughs> Usually with our managers, what we do is we try and remove them from these sorts of decisions because they might be idiots. Mm -hmm. To which the rejoinder is, well, okay, but if you're worried that they're idiots, then these sorts of decisions are the least of your problems. You have them running your teams. Mm -hmm. You have them creating the experience of your organization 365 days a year. Never mind whether they screw up the raise process. It's <laughs> what are they doing the rest of the time mm, for sure. that you should be massively worried about. Because see line number one, the team experience is the heart of our experience at work. And team leaders make that experience or, or fail to. Okay, so what's the deal with this people have potential lie? This one jumps out at me because I am someone for whom everybody has always told me how much potential I have and are disappointed that I didn't get the grade they thought on that, you know, report card or something. So this is when I'm like, oh, maybe this get lets me off the hook. Well, so potential, <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, I think it, it probably does, actually. Um, potential at work is how we divide the treasure, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of like a good capitalist philosophy. We don't have infinite treasure, therefore we should give all the goodies, the promos, the compensation, the high-profile assignments, we should give those to the people who are going to prosper, and the rest of the folks, well, we'll just sort of try and persuade them that we like them without actually doing anything to demonstrate that. Mm -hmm. There's something that's actually fairly toxic about this when you sort of play it out. Right. Companies will, once a year, very often say, let's evaluate everybody on their potential, We'll have 15% who have it and 85% who don't, and the 15% get the goodies, and the 85%, we're going to try and persuade them that they matter and we care about all the people here while doing absolutely nothing to demonstrate that. I'm exaggerating only a little bit because this yeah. is how these sort of systems and processes are typically designed. All of that would actually be really sensible if there was some magic quality in a human being that enabled that person to grow and prosper whatever you put in front of them. We sort of process this idea of potential as, oh, I can drop you in, I can parachute you in anywhere, and you will necessarily succeed because you've got the magic substance flowing through your veins. Mm -hmm. And uh, poor old Ashley, he's got no magic substance. So wherever we put him, it's going to be somewhat embarrassing. So we better not do very much there. <laughs> There's no evidence for that. There is nothing in science that has determined a universal human quality that predicts performance irrespective of context. Yeah, That's what we're making these decisions based on. It's a belief in a thing that isn't a thing. Well, and when you put this together with the idea that 
Um, rating other people, for example, is much more about the rater than the rated person. How do you also measure potential and how well people are doing it, achieving it? So measuring up to it. Yeah. Well, and then you really start to worry because there's a little voice in the back of your head that goes, huh, maybe what we're actually saying, putting those two things together is uh, not potential because that's not a thing but who are the people who i think are more like me that was nagging at me while we were having this conversation is like if most managers in corporate america are middle-aged white men right and their ratings and their judgments about potential and things like that are therefore mostly descriptions of the perspectives of middle-aged white men well acknowledging that and starting to have some conversations about how we get away from that has to be a part of any sort of inclusion and diversity drive that you need to have and and, um, better understanding and learning from your company about those things. I think so. And, you know, just to come to, okay, well, having demolished potential, what's a more useful (laughs) idea? (laughs) The, The thing that all of us have is a set of traits, a set of things that are essentially who we are that don't change very much, Mm. and a set of states, what we're good at, what we're learning, how we've changed our performance recently. You can think of that, if you like physics, you can think of that as mass and velocity. And so Mm -hmm. you put those two things together, who you are and where you're going, if you like, and what you get is momentum, which is an interesting way to think through this. Because then my question is, Sam, not do you have potential or not? Am I elevating you or casting you aside based on quite possibly how similar to me I think you are? Mm -hmm. But rather, who are you and where are you going? Do we want to change that? Do we like that? Yeah. What are the ingredients of that? What are your hopes and dreams for the future? What is Sam's particular way of getting to those things? And that's a conversation you have with everybody, not just the elite um, 15%, if you like. This is totally reminding me of a conversation my wife and I had with our marriage counselor where she made me understand that when you're unsatisfied with your partner, a lot of a lot of that is due to your partner not measuring up to your expectations But that's not your job as a partner, or it sounds like as a manager, your job is to learn who this person is that you have chosen to spend time with and and not to decide whether or not they measure up to your preconceived notions of who they ought to be and to acknowledge that people change over time. And uh, it feels like I'm sensing a theme to some of these things here, which is that my job is not to measure you against my ruler to figure out what your ruler looks like and and ask you how it's feeling for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the best managers, the best team leaders are brilliant at individualization. Mm-hmm. They are brilliant at saying what works for Sam may or may not work for Ashley. Yeah. Now then, expectations have got a role to play yeah. because we do need to get things done at work. But it's much more useful to be in the outcomes business than the means business, if you like. If you're forever saying to people, do it this way, you're generally saying, by the way, do it my way, which is not actually going to help them. But if you're saying, how would you go about doing this? Then you're having a really interesting conversation that people can lean into and that will help them step forward. So I think we have time to address the final lie in the list. And obviously, as I mentioned before, we're, we're skipping a lot here. Um, but the final one I think is feels very worth addressing, which is the lie that leadership is a thing. <laughs> Isn't it? Really? Well, if it is, then could someone please define it for me? Okay. That's the rub. Because when we try and define it, we come up with these lists, uh, certainly in the world of work. And um, the lists usually start with uh, strategy for some 
it's, it's another one of these laws that was passed when I wasn't mm-hmm. paying attention. Leadership attribute lists must start with strategy and strategic thinking. Yeah, vision too. Even though, by the way, no one can really agree on what strategy is or how on earth you rate somebody's thinking. But anyway, yeah. strategic thinking, you get execution, you get uh, relationship building, you get empathy very often, you get um, executive presence. That shows up on a lot of leadership lists, even though, again, no one can agree on what the heck that might be, although it's something that executives who are present appear to have. Yeah, they know how their suits fit. Exactly. And by the way, is maybe another backdoor for people who look like me. Sure sounds like it. (laughs) Yeah. Then you have vulnerability is is in vogue at the moment. Authenticity had a little bit of a a strong showing a few years ago. (laughs) Trends in leadership uh, identification, um, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, you know, these things are all admirable qualities. So don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. They are all our projection, I think, of what we would like our leaders to be. And goodness me, one characteristic of our leaders so often is that they disappoint us, which we should talk about a little bit more <laughs> one day, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> to follow is to be mammothly disappointed like 90% of the time, which yeah. is interesting. But the really interesting thing about the lists is if you hold them up against real leaders in the real world, you discover the real leaders don't have all the things on the list. Mm-hmm. And very often they have hardly any of the things on the list. And you can run through examples in your head right now, but you know, ethics always shows up on the lists sooner or later because we can't create and nor should we create an aspirational model of leadership that lacks the idea of ethics. But you know, to take a, an obvious example, Steve Jobs is parking his car in the handicapped spot in the parking lot how can he get away with that because he buys a new car to avoid registering it in california every six months <laughs> so he's using his wealth to steal and to occupy a space that's meant mm-hmm. for people with a disability which is a weird and b not ethical but you wouldn't go steve jobs wasn't a leader you'd go steve jobs was an interesting concoction of things that are admirable and things that are repulsive and the shortcut for that, the, the name we usually give to that is, of course, a human. Mm-hmm. So where's the leadership if all the things on the leadership lists, if you like, are optional when we look at real leaders in the real world? Then what is the thing? And I don't think there is a thing called leadership, therefore, or at least if there is, no one can define it, again, as some sort of a universal list of things. The only thing we have is following. So following is a thing for sure. We know that people will put themselves in the service of another voluntarily. Okay, what leads you to do that? You're not doing it in response to perfection in another human being. You're doing it in response to somebody who's brilliantly well-defined, somebody who we we say in the book, somebody who's spiky. Mm. You respond to excellence and clarity because it makes the world a more predictable place for you. And that's something that we're all drawn towards. So it's not really about the leader, it's about the follower. We need to get curious, massively curious about why do people follow. We need to take, I think, leaders off the pedestals and go, let's understand this world of following somebody else because there's a lot of it in human society, never mind the world of work, there's a lot of it wherever you look. And it seems to be mysterious and it seems to be very useful if we could see inside that and understand it a little bit better. I think what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, rather than looking at somebody and trying to decide if that person is a good leader, look for clusters of people who are being effective and seem healthy at it and try and figure out who's at the center of it. And that person is probably a leader. Or if you're saying, well, 
if you're wondering if you're a leader or not, look behind you. Yeah. If there's nobody there, you're not. <laughs> if there's a yeah. line of people, go, why are you following me? And make sure that their answers make sense to you. And their answers aren't going to be because strategic thinking or because executive presence or because execution or because ethics. Their answers are going to be because I love the way you do this or I think you stand for this or you're excellent at this. There'll be something that's idiosyncratic, not something general. Mm -hmm. If you want to bring followers with you, understand your own idiosyncrasy and how to magnify it because that's what people are hooking on to. I like that. That makes a lot of sense. I, now now the spikiness makes more sense to me too. I like that. We've touched on some of the greatest hits here, I suppose. Or maybe not even the greatest hit. We've isolated some of the tracks in the playlist. Right. Okay. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I like that. If people want to learn more, there's obviously information online besides this podcast, which will give you some more stuff. A lot of it at freethinkingleader.org, which is where you can learn more about the Freethinking Leader Coalition. And there's also links there to buy the book. We'll include a link to the book, Nine Lies About Work, in the description as well. I found it really enjoyable to learn more about it. And I've enjoyed our conversation, Ashley. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. It's been great fun. The Lawyer's Podcast is produced by Laura Briggs and edited by Christopher Ng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Well, here are your first two steps. If you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free right now at lawyers.com book. Next, if you're looking for help beyond the book, then let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyers.com community to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.